This week we continue our Bible in a Nutshell series with the Means of Redemption Part 2. God had a plan that He carried out perfectly, providing for our redemption, and the means of this redemption He made available to all mankind. How does God reveal Himself to us, and what are the implications of our response? This is Nita Erlene, and you are listening to the TRC Ministries podcast. The vision of TRC Ministries is to see individuals fulfill their calling under the authority of the Church, using the resources of the Kingdom of God. Here is Tori Bjorklund, President of TRC Ministries, continuing to unpack the means of redemption, teaching at Caravan Fellowship. The means of redemption, it is the nature of man that he can be regenerated. We talked about this last week. God created him with this ability. This ability does not exist by the will of man, but by the will or the design and intent of God. Yet it does not happen without the will of man. The means of redemption is the atonement provided by God in Jesus Christ, who carried out the plan perfectly, which we talked about the plan a couple of weeks back. This act of grace brought about redemption to all men, which is the controversial thing which we talked about a few weeks back. Yet not all are redeemed because the final act of redemption has been left to each individual. Only those who desire union with God and choose to receive the gift offered to restore that union will be redeemed for his possession. So that's where we left off last week. And I'll continue on now with the next paragraph and we'll kind of go through the details on that. With our spirit comes a consciousness of ourselves. Now, this is one of the things that even scientists that believe in evolution will say separates us from the animals, is self-consciousness, is something that we don't observe in, in animals in the way that we observe it in ourselves. And my assertion is that is because we have a spirit, and that is different. That is the likeness of God, and it makes us conscious of ourself And it is the nature of being a spiritual being that makes us self-conscious. And we'll talk a little bit more about what that means. Uh, It doesn't mean embarrassed about something about yourself. But it is also our nature to be conscious of God. It is as unavoidable as our consciousness of ourselves. From this consciousness, God works to bring us to the choice of unity Unity with himself. That was, if you remember, the gift offered to restore union with God. So it is from this consciousness of God that he works to bring us to the choice of unity. We have the choice of working with him or against him in this process. It is not the sin of Adam that condemns us before God, but our own stubbornness to his overtures of grace and life. It is the sin of Adam that brought about the reality of our spiritual death and our physical mortality. It is the sin of our own rebellion that brings about our condemnation to remain dead and wind up eventually in the final repository for all death. So that's my overarching statement for today. And we'll start with consciousness as part of the nature of spiritual beings. So... To be conscious of something is to be aware of it. To be self-conscious is to be aware that we are an individual that is distinct from other individuals. We're not just our 
surroundings. We're not just, you know, for example, you could say uh, a rock has no consciousness of itself. And to some degree, what we find is, and I, I haven't myself been a scientist that has studied this, but science scientists that do these sort of studies talk about the fact that awareness is something that an animal doesn't have in the sense of thinking of themselves as unique and identifiable from others. They have instinctive qualities that they use for self-preservation, but there's not the awareness that we have that we experience in relationships and even in identifying in our relationships with others. This is probably a deep topic which we don't have time to go into, but I would say that it's fairly universally agreed upon, and so I won't spend a lot of time on that part of it. But one of the things that isn't universally agreed upon is consciousness of God. Now, this is something that I experienced, but I want to look at what the Bible says about this. Hebrews 4.12, people might be familiar with that. The Word of God is like a two-edged sword. Remember that? And what does it do? It divides spirit and soul. How? What does that mean? What does it mean that the Word of God divides the soul and the spirit? Let's see, we're in, we're in chapter 4, verse 12. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This idea of judging the thoughts and intentions of one's heart is really our conscience. And you'll find a lot in the Bible said about our conscience. But the fact that the Word of God can actually have an impact on us is the fact of the re- the reality that our spirit is conscious of acts that it's done, impacts that it's had on others, its wake that it has left in this world behind it, if you will. You know, a boat leaves a wake. It's a disturbance. And we leave a wake as we walk through this world. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. But it has an impact. And we see that, and we are aware of that, And when the Word of God shines a light on that, it's because of that awareness that we actually are impacted by the Word of God. And so part of that consciousness of ourself includes a consciousness of God and of our own personal guilt before Him when we see that negative impact that we have had on the world around us. So I want us to turn to Romans chapter 1. We'll spend a fair amount of time there today. Now, one of the things about this book, Paul didn't get a chance to preach to these people the way that he had preached to others. And he wanted to present the gospel to them as he had presented to others. And so he wrote it down. And that's one of the reasons why there is so much systematic doctrine of the gospel that's contained in Romans and how it really starts at one point and goes all the way through. You don't find it laid out that well in other 
epistles that Paul wrote because he was writing to people that he had already delivered that to. And he was, you know, kind of fixing some of the things that they where they'd gone off the track, so to speak. But here he's laying this out. And so chapter one is the beginning of this. And we start at verse 16 because it kind of sets up the theme of this whole area. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. For the wrath of God. So right here, I just want to point out that conjunction is connecting that passage, then this passage we're about to read, to the gospel. This is the part of the gospel. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I want you to notice that word suppress. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You know what suppression is? That is an active effort to hold something back. That's what a dam does to a river. It suppresses it suppresses the current. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And now here, because, because what? The wrath of God is revealed. That, here's why the wrath of God is there. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. Now, there's some different translations that we have there. First, let's start with the King James. What does that say? I, I, I happen to really like this particular translation in this one verse, particularly because if you go back through and, you know, kind of go the transliteration of the Greek, there's an emphasis that he's making here that is stating something twice. What does the King James say on this? Somebody have the King James? Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, that God hath showed it unto them. Okay, so you notice that there's that same two-stage, right? It's manifest in them, because God has shown it to them. Okay, so what does manifest mean? It means to, to come to light or to be apparent, right? And so the issue there with manifest and being in them is it's, it's innate. It exists. It isn't, it isn't from the outside a revelation to them, but that it is there and it is brought to light. Uh, what's the NIV say on that? Somebody have a... What may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. Yeah. So that's, I think, not a very good translation, <laughs> in my opinion. And the reason I wanted to bring that out is because there is a difference between saying that something is in us and there is something that is known by us. And the Greek makes it clear that it is in us and brought to light, not can be known. There's two separate statements there. One, that is placed within us and brought to light, and the other is that God is actively at work bringing it to light, making it known. Okay, so how does he do that? Well, the Word of God. The Word of God is how he makes it known, but it's innately there. 
And it's not just the word of God. That's what we're reading in Hebrews 4. But he'll go on and explain how he is at work making it known. So let's go on. Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, God's invisible attributes, God's eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Do you know why we can understand that God is divine, that God is eternal, and even the things that we don't see about him that we can understand through creation? Because God has placed that within us. Right? Somewhere else he said he has placed eternity in our hearts. This is something that we have innately within us that we recognize when we see it. It resonates within our spirit because we are spiritual beings and we say, that is of us. If you were stranded on a desert island, seemingly abandoned from all mankind, or like when I was a child, we would go out into the woods where no human had ever set foot. At least that's what we thought. And you're, you're on this island, and you've been there for quite some time, barely surviving, and you're getting further and further from the place that you beached as you find scavenging for more food and firewood and looking for fresh water. And you come across footprints that you know are not yours because you hadn't been there. What happens is you go, I recognize that. That has something to do with me. And that's that same kind of recognition that we see as human beings with a spirit when we see God's handiwork. It's not just stars millions of miles away. It's not just the beauty, but the fact that it's beautiful resonates in our spirit. And we say, that has something to do with me. I recognize that. That is built in, innately in us. It is part of being a spiritual being. Verse 21, I think we'll go on because we're going to come back to this in a minute. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculation and their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So this is why the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven and exists against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of man because they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And the way they suppress the truth is that they take this God-given innate ability of a spiritual being to recognize the eternal attributes, invisible attributes, the divine power of God, and suppress the knowledge of that, actively resisting it in order to be able to replace the existence of God with a philosophy, an idea that God does not exist or is at best dead. 
And that's where we find human beings. But I want you to see that this consciousness of God can be broken down into four things. Well, five, really. Okay, so we're going to talk about these five areas of consciousness, okay? Let me start by saying there are varying degrees of knowing God, or there are varying degrees of consciousness. Let's just take that concept for a second. Have you ever been just totally sound asleep, and you find out that something happened around you, and you had no idea of it? I mean, I've woken up in the morning trying to be very quiet, not to wake up my wife as I get out of bed early and I grab my stuff and I open the door and it squeaks a little and I turn back to see if I woke her up and she's not even in the bed. And I realize, oh, some point in the night she got up and left. You ever had that experience? Yeah, no idea. Okay, that's that's no consciousness. That's a, a level of zero, right? Now, on the other hand, you ever been, you think you're sound asleep, you might even be dreaming, and then your teenage daughter tries to sneak in real quietly at one in the morning, and you come awake. Well, you didn't realize you were conscious, or let's, let's wait a minute, I, there's, that's a level three on the scale. Let's go to level one. You're a young mother, your children are young, they've been keeping you up late at night, and your oldest comes into the bedroom and says, Mommy, my legs are aching. And you say, Well, have you tried to put your sleeping shoes on? Okay, you're sort of conscious that something is... Is that how it went? Your sleeping shoes? <laughs> it wasn't my wife. It was my uh, lunatic friend that said that. But anyway, it's... So at a level one, you know, you, you sort of know something's happening, but you're not really all there. You just sort of know, and you're interacting with it at some level, but not very consciously, but a little bit conscious of it. Okay, so that's the next level. We experience this in our life. There's even times where, uh, okay, let's get up to like a nine or so. Um, so on a scale of 10, you're driving down the freeway, you go around cars, you pass the slow people, um, or they pass you, you're watching your mirrors, you're going through, but your mind is somewhere else. And you realize, wait a minute, that sign that says Fergus Falls seven miles is past where I wanted to turn off. Okay, anybody ever do something like that? I have. And I was completely conscious of the traffic around me and all of that, but not entirely conscious of what I was doing. Okay, now we'll just go to level 10. You are in a city you don't know. The traffic is going by at 70 miles an hour in a 55. You're in a construction zone, and you know you have to turn soon. Okay, what's your consciousness level? On a scale of 1 to 10, it's an 11, right? You're like, okay, every sign, you're looking at, you're watching every mirror, people are coming by, you're trying to make sure you don't hit the concrete barriers that they've put up. I mean, you're doing, you're trying everything you can to make sure that you don't miss something because there's no room for error. 
you know, on a scale of one to 10, you're at an 11. We experience different levels of consciousness in the world around us. And I'm asserting that there are different levels of that same consciousness of God in our world, in us. And so we are not at a zero. The biblical account is that we are at something above zero. Maybe it's one or two or something like that, but we are not at a zero. And that's the first assertion here that I'm making, but I want to expand on that a little bit. So there are varying degrees of consciousness of God. And we could call this varying degrees of intimacy. Okay? So the first one we just read about, this is the universal. This is what God has against man and the universal. Man has suppressed the truth and unrighteousness on an individual basis. There is a universal awareness of God that is planted in man by being a spiritual being, and it is enlivened through seeing what has been made. Okay, But that universal consciousness of God is one level of knowing God, of consciousness of God. The next levels all come through revelation. So that's what's within us. That's within us. That's because we're spiritual. Everything after that is God's activity to reveal himself to us. Okay? So the next level is the revelation that comes from nature. We just read about that. Romans 1.20. Since the creation of this world... His invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen and understood through what has been made. That's the next level of revelation. That also is universal. Yet some people suppress that. The next level we find in Hebrews 1, 1, 1. Anybody know what that says? What's the next level? In sundry times and diverse manners, what? Spake in time passed through the prophets. So God spoke through people that were his spokesperson. This is the next level of revelation. The next level of consciousness of God. This is God speaking through other people in this world. We have an account of those. Noah, for example. You know Noah was a prophet? He was. God told him to go tell people that he was going to flood the world, right? Noah was a prophet. Jonah was a prophet also. And he spoke to people. These prophets spoke to people. God revealed to the prophets something, and they spoke to other people. Now, there's other levels. I won't go into depth in that um, necessarily, but I'll just mention it. What did God say about Moses, by the way, to Aaron and Miriam? He said, when I speak, when I want to speak to people, I get a prophet, right? And how do I speak to prophets? Well, I give them dreams. I give them visions. I give them riddles, right? 
But not so with my servant Moses. What? I speak face to face with him. Now, we know that that face to face concept was a uh, metaphorically face to face because we know that when he actually, Moses said, I want to see your face, he said, You can't, but I'll let you see my backside. So we know that he's speaking metaphorically here, but what he was getting at is there is a level of intimacy with Moses that he didn't have with other prophets. We have levels of intimacy with Enoch, for example. He walked with God. Noah walked with God too. Remember we brought that up the other day. You have Melchizedek and others that we have reference to that God was very intimate with. Okay, so we have these different prophets, and we have different levels of consciousness of God that God chooses to use in the lives of different people for his own purposes. Let's finish from Hebrews, since we were there, Hebrews 1.1. Somebody remember what it says in verse 2. But now he has spoken to us by his Son, Jesus. And we learn in Hebrews, that he was the exact representation. He was a perfect revelation of God. So this is another level of consciousness of God, of who he is, awareness of God. So we have that in Hebrews chapter 1, 2. Also, we have John telling us that nobody had seen the Father, but Jesus revealed him to us. Do you remember that? John 1, 18 says... No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. It's John 1.18. So the next level of revelation is Jesus Christ. And you know what? In the heavenly realms, there were a lot of aha moments, I'll bet, when Jesus was doing his thing here on earth. They're like, oh, aha! And we find in Romans 3, for example, that he was publicly displayed as a propitiation for sin in order that the righteousness of God might be known, might be seen, because in past times he, what? He passed over sins previously committed. I say the righteousness of God in that he might justify those who have faith. So, this whole propitiation that happened were aha moments for people that had seen or for beings that had seen the past and wondered how it was that God could pass over sin. And now we know, oh, aha, this was a revelation. Jesus Christ was a revelation of God, a deeper revelation that brings about the possibility for deeper intimacy than could previously been had prior to him coming here on earth. Or let me say it this way, a level of intimacy that could not have been had if he did not come to this earth. And then we get one more level. John 17, 3, you remember what that says? What's eternal life? Knowing God. And this, Jesus speaking here in his high priestly prayer to God the Father, this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. This know 
is the same thing that Mary said to the angel when the angel said, you are with child. And she said, wait a minute, how can that be since I have known no man? What we're talking about here is intimate interaction with God himself through Jesus Christ. This is experiential knowledge. And by the way, so when you read in the New Testament, you'll find that, like for example, let's see, Philippians 3.8, I think has one of those where it talks about the true knowledge. In fact, I'm going to read that because this is Paul. This is his ambition, right? I count all things loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. That's that same knowing Jesus Christ. Second Peter chapter one. Let me read that to you. Second Peter chapter one, verses two and three. Well, I'll start at verse two. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Same word. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Many times, I used to think when I saw that phrase, true knowledge, that that meant getting your doctrine right. That ain't what it means. That's not what it means. It means you have had a real experience of interaction, an experiential interaction with that person. You might remember remember what Job said. He was saying to his friends, man, if I could just get audience with God, I could explain to him some things. And once he heard my side, he would relent of all of this trouble that has been on me, right? That's what he just wanted audience with God. And then God showed up and he said, okay, Job, here's your audience. What have you got to say for yourself? Do you remember what he said? Well, besides I loathe myself and repent of dust and ashes or however that goes. He said, I have heard of you, but now I know you. And we can say, somebody says, hey, do you know you know, so-and-so, and sometimes we might respond, well, I know who he is, but I don't really know him, right? Do you know Donald Trump? Uh, well, no, yes. I mean, I know who he is. What do you mean? So this is a concept that we understand, although the biblical concept of knowledge is like the difference between somebody who has read a book on auto mechanics and somebody who has rebuilt an engine. They have an intimate knowledge. The one who's actually worked on the thing has an intimate knowledge of how it operates. They know about it, but they also know it. And this is the concept that keeps coming up, and that is what true knowledge of God is. The true knowledge is a real experiential interaction with God, and that's a level of intimacy that we can only have with an enlivened spirit.
And so I want to draw this line here. The universal consciousness of God is implanted to us because we are spiritual. It's the nature of spirit to recognize the existence of God. The interaction with nature gets that spirit knowledge, that spiritual knowledge to the forefront of our experience in this world. And that's universal. The next level of prophecy uh, does not appear to be universal, but it appears to be way more widespread than we realize. What we have in the Bible is a very small part of the story of God's interaction with man. And you find a hint of that, for example, when Paul was in Athens, right? And he shows up and he says, I see you guys are really, really spiritual people. You're really religious. I mean, you got all kinds of altars to gods. And I even saw one to an unknown God. And I'm here to tell you about him. There's a story behind that altar to the unknown God. And that story has to do with a prophet that God sent to those people. Just like Balaam. Just like Melchizedek. And other people who, who we just see a fleeting glimpse of them in the narrative of the Hebrew people. But there are prophets that God has had that just like Elijah of old that we didn't know about, God has his people. We just don't know how universal that prophecy is. But once that response to that revelation of God is to the positive, guess what happens? That's when God can work with an enlivened spirit and begin to provide the personal revelation of himself in our own lives. And it comes from a positive response with what we do know about God. And it grows from there, from level to level to level of intimacy until we reach the point at which, as Jesus said, my Father and I will come and make our home in you. It's not suppressing the truth, but embracing the truth about God as it becomes known to us and, and as we become aware of it. And sometimes that includes the recognition of our own sinfulness and we respond positively to that. Now, sometimes it's that revelation of our own sinfulness that causes us to respond negatively. We don't want to be faced with our own sinfulness. So it could be repentance, but there's two realities that God reveals to us. So now we remember Jesus said, when I go, the Father's going to send the Holy Spirit, right? And the Holy Spirit has a job of revelation. You realize that. Part of the job of the Holy Spirit is to reveal something. Now, you remember what he reveals? He reveals, so there's two categories of people. Those who have responded positively and those who have responded negatively. If you think about that, that's what Jesus was teaching. Now, let's start with those that have responded negatively, trying to suppress the truth. What does the Holy Spirit do? What revelation does he bring to those? Conviction of sin. He comes and he will convince the world concerning what? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. The sin and righteousness is the dividing of the person. 
the thoughts and motives are being revealed to the individual. And judgment, of course, is the right of God to rule his invisible attributes that are revealed. And so the Holy Spirit is revealing that and confirming the knowledge that they already have in themselves. Those who have had the positive response, which we find even in Romans chapter 2, verse 15, let's start at 14. When the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, the Gentiles, not having the law, are a law to themselves. So in other words, they don't have what? They don't have the prophets. They don't have Moses. They don't have that level of prophecy. So they're operating on what? The universal revelation of God that was placed within them and confirmed by nature. But when they respond to that positively, in that they show the work of the law written in their heart, their conscience will bear witness. Their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. That's what the writer of Hebrews was talking about. The word of God. When the word of God comes to them, and that might not be until the day of judgment even, their thoughts and their conscience will either accuse or else defend them on the day when, according to my gospel, this is gospel teaching here now, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the word of God, right? Which is alive and active. But it's alive and active, not just waiting for the end. And when people come in contact with the word of God, it convicts them or justifies them based on whether or not they have made a positive or a negative response to the reality of God that they know about. There's no excuse. Nobody knew about God. That's not an excuse. They knew about God. And they chose to either suppress that knowledge or embrace the knowledge. When they embrace the knowledge, that positive response is faith. It's not as informed as faith in what the prophets said, faith in the revelation of Jesus Christ. But that positive response becomes the basis of faith upon which God can apply justification to these people and allow them to have access to all of his resources in Christ Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And that revelation is available to everyone who responds in faith, which can't happen without some form of repentance. That's the first step of faith. Now, I, I'm reluctant to say it's the first step of faith in the sense like my experience was my first step of faith was accepting God's right to rule. And I just simply said, if you send me to hell, I'm okay with that because I understand that that's what I deserve. Now, is that repentance? Well, in a way it is, but I didn't learn later how to repent of saying, please forgive me. So we, we have you know, a little bit of a chicken and an egg there, and I think God knows how to work that out. The positive response is really recognizing God and who he is and embracing the reality of him, including and especially his right to rule. 
the idea that only those who God has already regenerated can repent and believe, I don't believe that's a biblical concept. And I've looked quite a bit for the gift of faith and the gift of repentance and the places where it is implied and or stated, it appears to me that the context is that the availability of reacting or responding with that is a gift. The forgiveness that comes from it is a gift, but the repentance and the faith we are held accountable for having or not having, for doing or not doing. And therefore, it isn't like this person didn't repent because God didn't allow them to repent, or this person didn't have faith because God suppressed the truth. No, they suppressed the truth, and I believe that they can choose not to suppress the truth, and it doesn't take an act of God to get them to stop suppressing the truth, except by him continuing to face them with the truth. But the fact that they can, if they do say, oh, I give, like I said, uncle, which by the way, when do you say uncle? It's when your big brother's holding you down and yeah, twisting your arm or whatever. It's when the hound of heaven is on your tail. And so it's still an act of God. I mean, I don't want to minimize the act of God, but I don't want to minimize the will of man as saying, uncle, and that that is a choice they can make. There is something that man does in response. And, and when you see people preaching the gospel, what they do is they say, you repent. They tell them to do it. And it's implied that they have the ability to do so. I'm almost out of time. But I just want to point out that there's this, there's this line of demarcation and that line of demarcation, do you know what a line of demarcation is? We have a telephone here, and the telephone company has a line of demarcation. And they say, if you have problems on the other side of that wall, that's your problem. If you have problems on this side, outside of this wall, that's our problem. That's a line of demarcation. It's a clear delineation of responsibility, okay? And there's this line of demarcation where God has done everything that he needs to do and can do without violating the humanness of man, the spiritual nature of man. He has done everything to make himself known. And then there's a line of demarcation where we choose to respond positively or to suppress that. And that point, when we respond positively, begins the next level of intimacy until we gain that intimacy, when we see him as he is, and we become like him. Okay? From this consciousness, this, this universal consciousness, God works, this is one of, my, one of my assertions, God works to bring us to that choice of unity with him. And that is what Jesus was referring to in John 6, for example. My father Nobody can come to me unless the Father draws him. How does the Father draw him? By continuous revelation of himself to the spirit of man. You remember John 7, 17? Jesus said, if you're willing to do the will of my Father who sent me, you will know whether the teachings are true. Do you remember him saying that? The positive response to the 
father is what brings about that next step of intimacy. In fact, the alternative to that was, you remember what he said in his story about the rich man and Lazarus? And the rich man said, well, at least send Lazarus back from the dead to, to warn my brothers about this. And you remember what Abraham said to him? If they don't believe Moses, they're not going to believe a man risen from the dead. Why is that? Because they're suppressing the truth. That is the state of their heart. That suppression makes it impossible for anything else to get through because we've already made up our mind. To make something clear here, I think that those who become harder and harder and harder are not unable to be reverse that trend. But I also believe that it's not a jump all the way back to zero, if you will, um, from the negative side. They might actually repent and have faith but what you'll find is that all those years of suppressing the truth mean that it's a hard slog to get to actually accepting in faith all the things that you need to to walk successfully with God. And that's why for people like it was with me, this is a long struggle. There's two and a half years of not looking very Christian and yet having the Spirit of God carrying me through that experience. And a part of that was because I had hardened my heart and my conscience was seared. And it took a long time for God to regenerate that conscience. I remember coming to Dave's house when Naomi and I were going out and I wanted to rent a movie. And Naomi says, is that a good movie? Oh, yeah, that's a good movie. And she said, well, you know, my, my dad's kind of particular about movies that we watch in the house there. And uh, there's nothing wrong with this movie. It's a good movie. Okay. So we bring the movie. We get you know, two minutes in, a guy is throwing F-bombs around, and, and Dave says, if he says that one more time, well, he started to say, if he says that one more time, I'm going to shut it off. But he didn't get through to, I'm going to shut it off. He said, if he says that one more time, and the guy says that one more time, and Dave shut it off. I'm like, I didn't remember any of that. Nothing when I had watched that movie previously made me feel guilty about watching that movie. But it took time for God to regenerate the conscience, and the writer of Hebrews talks about that, right? That we have to train our senses to discern right from wrong. And how do we do that? By taking in the Word of God, the meat of the Word of God. Okay, well, anyway, that's, that's preachable right there. Last thing. So given all of this, it is not the sin of Adam that condemns us before God. And I want to I stress that because that is... I believe, a wrong teaching that we get really hung up on. It is not the sin of Adam that condemns us before God. What is it? Our own stubbornness to his overtures of grace and life. That's what condemns us before God. The sin of Adam condemned us to mortality. The sin of Adam condemned us to needing regeneration. But it's not what will send us to hell. Because God took care of the rest of that. And the justification of man is universal. The resurrection of man is not. And that's the line of demarcation. And you'll find that in, in Romans 5.10. Or maybe it was 17. No, you'll have to dig it out for yourself. That is where we find that through the death of Jesus Christ... Forgiveness was made 
available to all men. All men, it says. The same thing that with through the death of Adam, all died. Through the death of Jesus, all were justified. But the very next phrase in the same verse is through his life we're saved. Not all are saved. And that is what we need to see, is that the sin of Adam does not condemn us before God, but our own stubbornness to his overtures of grace and life. God, I thank you so much for your kindness. I thank you for your revelation of yourself in Jesus Christ and through the prophets. And I thank you that we can experience you in our lives in a real way that is substantial, that, that we can have this true knowledge of you and that you will reveal yourself to us in a way that impacts us and changes our life. And I pray that you would help us to respond accordingly with positiveness towards your grace and truth. Even when it condemns our sin, may we embrace you and come to you with, with uh, confidence that you are a God of grace. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Today was the final message in the eight-part series on the Bible message in a nutshell. We hope you were blessed by it. If you enjoyed the series and want to hear more messages by Tori Bjorklund, make sure to subscribe. And for more information on TRC Ministries or to contact us, Visit our website at www.regenerationcenter.org.